This episode is brought to you by Accenture. A better you starts with better hydration. Accenture is on a mission to inspire people to do what matters most. Their proprietary ionization process transforms water from any source into ionized alkaline water, providing water that's 99.9% pure with a pH of 9.5 or higher. Essentia Overachieving H2O, the number one ionized alkaline water. Shop now. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. When Sweet Tarts dared to combine sweet and tart, they thought, why stop there? Why not create other exciting and unexpected combinations like rainbows and ropes or fruity and gummy or chewy and more chewy? That's why they created fun treats like Sweet Tarts Twisted Rainbow Ropes, Gummies Fruity Splits, and Chewy Fusions. When you dare to combine, it's sure to blow your mind. Sweet Tarts, dare to combine. Visit SweetTartsCandy.com to shop now. If you're thinking, I should go for a run today, but it looks like it could rain, Sierra says save on epic rain jackets. If you're also thinking, but I can't go out in these beat-up old running shoes, Sierra says save on top brand running shoes. And if you're still thinking, but I'm also busy performing brain surgery, well, then we say you really should have led with that. Sierra, let's get moving to your local store, like now. Go! Welcome to the Olive Podcast. I'm Janine, Olive's Deputy Editor and Podcast Host, and each episode I'll be catching up with chefs, cookery writers and characters from the food scene in Britain and beyond. Join us each week to expand your food knowledge as our guests share 10 things we need to know about the specialist subject. And do listen out for our effortless bonus episodes where they also reveal their top cooking cheats, hacks and shortcuts. I'm delighted to welcome Yeshi Jampa and Julie Kleeman to the podcast today. Julie and Yeshi are the owners of Taste Tibet Restaurant in Oxford, which is their first permanent site after running a successful street food business for six years. And they've written a great new book of recipes and stories, Taste Tibet Family Recipes from the Himalayas, which we've just featured in Olive magazine. Welcome Yeshi and Julie and congratulations on the book. Thank you so much. Thank you, Janine. Um, Today we're going to talk about 10 things you need to know about Tibetan food and cooking, but I thought we could start by you sharing a little bit of your story and how you got where you are today. Sure. So we actually met in India in 2009, but Yishi was born and brought up in rural Tibet. So he led a semi-nomadic existence. He didn't go to school. For six months of the year, he accompanied animals out on the high pastures of the Tibetan plateau. And when he was about 19, and I say about 19 because he's not quite sure how old he is, <laughs> he left Tibet over the Himalayas for India. And he'd been living in India for just over a decade before we met. And we, we met on a mountain path. I was a tourist in town and he was out, I think, um, taking pictures for a photography project. Yeah. And... Um, I was living in China at the time. In a previous life, I used to be the chief editor of the Oxford 
Chinese dictionary. So that's how we ended up in Oxford. And um, for a little while, we kind of commuted between, or I commuted between Beijing and where Yiji was living in um, Dharamsala, which is a hill town. It's in the foothills of the Himalayas on the Indian side. But eventually he moved, we both moved here to the UK and we set up our food stall in 2014 and had a, um, a, a kind of pitch in the central open market just next to the bus station here in Oxford. But we also took our stall and we still do to big festivals all around the land. So um, this year we're going to Glastonbury, the, the Hay Literary Festival, and we go to Latitude, Green Man, all kinds. So there we have fixed premises now, which we set up during the second lockdown in 2020. Um, we're still quite nomadic. Yeah. Still, I, I kind of enjoy it, you know. I mean, it's, she said I look after the animals, but uh, I was, yeah, six, six months to look after the ox on the mountain. So now I mean, enjoy <laughs> kind of festival as well. It's uh, different. A- but Outdoor uh, cooking. Yeah, outdoor cooking is still similar happening. It's great that you've got that dual thing of, um, you know, the outdoor and the outdoor going around the festivals and still being able to come back home to Oxford and share your food there as well. So let's get into your 10 things. Um, first of all, you were going to tell us a bit about the agriculture of Tibet, which I, can be quite challenging, I believe. Mm. Well, obviously, if um, people know one thing about Tibet, it's that the highest mountain in the world um, is inside Tibet as well as Nepal. So the average elevation of the Tibetan plateau is four and a half thousand meters, which means that it's really too cold and arid to support most cultivated ag- agriculture. The exception to that is barley, which is the key crop that probably enabled humans to survive at such high altitude. Barley actually thrives at at these kind of elevations, and it's really the most important food in the Tibetan diet. And for Tibetan nomads, in fact, most people in Tibet um, eat barley every day, and Tibetan nomads may pretty much exist off it. Yeah. So the way that it's it's eaten inside Tibet is well, it's known as tsamba. The barley is is roasted first of all, and then it is ground to the consistency of flour. And once it's in that form, it can be eaten in many different ways. But it's a, a super convenient food to carry around with you, e- e- either as a kind of um, powdered snack. You just have to kind of try not to choke, but I guess Tibetan nomads are experts at that. Or if you're able to to boil some water, um, you can add as little or as much as as you like. And if you add not that much, you can um, get the barley to come to the consistency of, we always think of it, and certainly our kids do, as Play-Doh. So it's very moldable in the hands. And then it becomes... Um, a really easy snack to to carry around in your pouch when you're on the go. And most nomads, most Tibetan people will add to that um, butter, yak butter usually, and sometimes yak cheese as well. And uh, sometimes, yeah, suet as well. But if, if you want to add a little bit more boiling water to it, you can also make more of a porridge out of it. Um, and as Yeshi yeah. said, also you can... Add, I mean, they could add berries or you could add honey. You can make it sweet as well as savory if that's all you've got at your disposal. And the, the, the barley is a very, very nutty taste. And uh, really, uh, we're making it in restaurants as well. We're making it 
Mm. Uh, people think it's like a nut, but it's not nut, but it's a very, very nutty taste. In the restaurant, we make a, a, a chocolate, we call it samba truffle. Um, so the, the base is samba, roasted barley, and then we make it with, with honey and chocolate. And as Yishi said, you know, it sounds very kind of, it tastes very kind of nutty, but actually it's, it's um, yeah, no nuts at all. Delicious. Yeah. Love the sound of that. And you, you mentioned um, you mentioned yak milk and cheese there. And I know mm. that another key to survival in such an inhospitable mm. environment is the yak. So tell us a bit about them and the role that they play. I don't think it would be possible really to survive in Tibet without the yak, would it? Yeah, yak is the key, you know, for transport to everything from yak and just, uh, yeah, the most, like some family, like big family have thousands of yaks for each family. And in days gone by, they would have um, carried wool, salt, tea and other goods um, to India, Nepal, China, and then bring in cotton, silk, glass and, and, and other goods to Tibet. But it's the female yak that um, really provides all the valuable dairy products to supplement the Tibetan diet. So when you're at very high altitude, you 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 need really kind of uh, high food with high fat content. And um, yak butter milk has roughly twice the fat content of cow's milk. And um, th- this has been proven to improve bone mineralization, and uh, also help against cancer and has anti-diabetic properties. So although many nomads at high altitude consume quite a lot of very kind of high uh, food that's very high in in fat content, in fact, it's exactly what they need. Um, And instances of cancer and diabetes are quite quite rare. And uh, there's certainly very little, I don't think you ever come across an overweight nomad. I never see it. Normally, like Tibetan people are, I don't think so. Then, really, I never see it. People are like obviously they're on the move as well all the time, so that helps. <laughs> yeah, um, that kind of brings us on to your next point, which is um, that you know traditionally because of the close links with Buddhism, we we often mm. think of Tibetans as being vegan or vegetarian, but you say most Tibetans are not, and you know they do have dairy and meats. Tell us about that. Yeah, this is so interesting. I think we come up against it quite a lot at the restaurant and food store. I think a lot of people assume um, that Tibetans would be vegan or vegetarian. And I think that that's a, a, a noble aspiration. And I think that certainly now that things are changing a little bit, it's becoming easier for people to adopt that kind of a diet. And obviously it is uh, is in line with the Buddhist approach. But for many people who live in quite kind of inhospitable environments, it's actually just not possible. So, you know, in some parts of Tibet, these are the highest grazing lands in the world and snowstorms are common even during the summertime. Nomads depend on yak meat and dairy for their survival. But what I find really interesting is that um, the Tibetans consume consciously. So bypassing, they, they bypass smaller animals like goats, sheep, pigs and chickens. So these kind of animals are going to feed fewer mouths and they tend to live off the meat of a single yak over the course of a whole year. So usually when the beast, that beast reaches the end of its useful life, which is roughly after 20, 25 years, it's, it'll be slaughtered before it, old age or disease take hold. And 
This is usually done in the autumn so that the yak's meat can be preserved over the long winter time. Um, it's cured using salt and Sichuan peppercorns and then it's hung out to dry in the sunshine for a few days and then bagged up for use over these, these barren months. And then after the, the meat has been um, cured, the skin is also preserved and it's used to make boots, belts, aprons, saddlebags, that kind of thing. And then it, it's the rope as well. ropes. Its bones are carved into comb, um, yeah, to make combs and buttons. And even the dung um, is used as fuel in areas where wood is very scarce or, or too precious to burn. Its tails are used as dusters. And, um, and the hair, of course, is used to make the Tibetan tents. It's woven to make the Tibetan tents that nomads live in at high altitude. And it's also used to make bags and other rainwear because it's very good at, at, um, at keeping the water off. So the, you know, they make sure to use every single part of the animal, whichever animal it is that is, is killed for consumption. It's also put towards multiple other uses. So it's not something, a way of eating that I'd ever come across before. I think for Yishi, it seemed kind of obvious. And to him, probably the, the, most, um, the most awful idea. I know once, once I bought prawns. <laughs> And that to him was a kind of, you know, absolutely abhorrent that you would have, you know, on one person's plate, the idea that maybe 20 or 30 creatures died for a single meal is absolutely counter to the way that Tibetans consume meat. And they, they don't, you know, need, probably doesn't need to be said, but, you know, they, they tend not to consume fish or other small sea creatures in the same way. It's amazing because you hear a lot, you know, with in this country a lot about nose to tail eating and conscious eating but that that's truly using every single bit of mm, the animal mm. and in a really thoughtful way as well as you said and and actually allowing it to to live a, a full life a working life but a full life and then um, consuming it consciously it's incredible mm. um for your number four you were going to share with us some of the the mainstays of the tibetan diet you know the other things that that would normally be eaten tell us about that so again, it probably goes without saying that really um, what you, you need when you live in a very um, cold, um, high altitude environment is something kind of warming and comforting and um, not just for the belly, but also for your hands. So it tends to be, Tibetan diet is typically characterized by warming soups and stews, usually cooked in one pot. So like noodles in broth, um, boiled meats, you'd usually have a soup on the side that's made from the broth that the meat is cooked in. Again, nothing is wasted. Um, and yak butter tea is, is a constant. So that's more like a broth than tea as we know it, really. And it gets people through the day. It's drunk in copious amounts. I mean, when we're with Yishi's family, his, you know, his parents are never really without a, a cup of this stuff in their hands, usually with a piece of yak cheese, dunked inside so there's like there's a snack element to that as well um they eat a lot of root vegetables so um during winter time when the ground is hardened with frost very little can grow or survive um, on the tibetan plateau but crops like vegetables and muli that's a big white radish that's really key to the tibetan diet and cabbage and turnips they can be harvested in the late autumn 
And then, well, your family, they, they put those vegetables away in caves, don't they, that they dig out of the mountainside. Yeah, because the winters are very frost and then they just don't want to kill them. Because they're very, very interested, like, you know, you put in the big calves and the cowards come to seal it with soil. And then inside, like when you take it out, like it's just literally you can dig out from the ground. It's so fresh. Mm. And then we can use it just so good. So there'll always be something to add to your soups and stews um, during wintertime. Yeah. Muli actually is also, I mentioned that that was quite a, a key vegetable. It's one that's not very well known um, in, in Europe anyway. In Japanese cooking, they call it daikon in other parts of the world, and it's used quite frequently in other parts of Asia. But so we make a lot, lot of like pickle as well. Yeah. That's right. So muli yeah. is is fermented, and and that's a great kind of and healthy snack for any time of day. Um, or you can also add that pickled into into soup right. stews, that kind of thing. Tell us about the importance of the um, of hot food, because you said mm. that cold food is rarely eaten without something hot alongside. And that's that's a, the doctor's advice. Tell us about that. Yeah, again, so, you know, obviously in this part of the world, we, we look on salads, smoothies, raw produce, as, you know, we, we perceive those kind of foods to be what's best for us. You know, we equate those kind of foods with what we call healthy eating. But when you live in a very cold place, in fact, um, yeah, Tibetan doctors say that these kind of foods can have a negative impact on our long-term health, um, especially when eaten in cold conditions, because they say that the body needs more energy to break down raw foods and cold foods and to digest, digest them, and that this depletes our vital reserves, which we'll, we'll need um, for healing. So, for example, they say that, you know, um, this can lead to chronic conditions. You know, if we if we the body is too depleted and, and needs to divert its, its energy towards a simple process like digestion, you know, that is to then um, uh, not deal with, with other conditions that, if left untreated, um, can become chronic. Talking about cooking, um, there's traditional mud and stone stoves are the, the, the thing that Tibetans cook on, and ovens are, are rare. In fact, ovens are just not used, are they? Um, tell us about the, the traditional stoves. Maybe you'd like to. Uh, you, you <laughs> well, I mean, the, the, the stove is is the most important part of the home. So it's kept alight both day and night and is a source of, of constant uh, warmth in the home, as well as obviously a steady supply of yak butter tea. Um, but this makes the, the kitchen the hub of of all activity and also the place where I think your family would bed down next to the stove. So, you know, there wasn't even um, such a thing as a bedroom in your home, really, or obviously there were separate rooms, but most people tended to just just sleep next to the stove because although the daytimes are very warm in Tibet, the evenings are when the sun goes down, in the daytime, you've got that proximity to the sun. You know, that's why Tibetan people have those wonderful kind of, you know, sun-kissed cheeks. But in the evenings, it gets really, really cold and you don't want to move. <laughs> you've had your food and you're sat by the fire and you're not, you're, you're going to sleep there. <laughs> yeah. And also it depends on the Tibetan, which kind of part, you know, as well. Mm. The Tibetan's a really, really big country. And there's some nomadics. There's only stoves they key to heat up the whole house. 
And then that's why, and they were like, from our homes, like, you know, stores, of course, we produce food and also the heat ups, but we have lots of animals. We put the ground floor and it, that animals hit the whole house as well, mm. not only fire. So, mm. so yeah. So the, the, the stove would be on what we would call the first floor. Yeah. And the, the animals have already heated the house from underneath oh, really? because, yeah. <laughs> but, um... Yeah, the, the stoves are fed not in, in Yeshi's part of Tibet where, I mean, he's at relatively low altitude and there's a lot a lot of um, good oak wood available. But in other parts of Tibet, they would be fed with yak dung or other. Yeah, there's different fields, you know, like the dung. dung in general. <laughs> yeah. Um, again, nothing being wasted. Um, and and breads, which is a very another very common food in Tibet. I think that we hadn't mentioned at the point of talking about all those soups and stews and things. Bread is also an important staple, but lacking an oven, that's also cooked on the stove top. So, well, Yeshi says when he was out on the mountains, he would he would find a large stone and place it in the center of the fire. But um, at home, where where there was a, a good stove available, you'd usually cook your, your bread inside a pan or a wok. So you end up with something more like a flatbread. Yeah, amazing. And you, you said, um, you know, because ovens haven't yet made their way into Tibet, um, and bread is essentially like a flatbread, that things like cakes, desserts, sweet treats, they're not typical at all. In fact, there's no real culture of desserts in Tibet. Tell us, tell us about that. That's right. Well, part of that is because there also really isn't much in the way of dental care. So people know that that uh, sweet food is not good for their teeth. I have to say, yes, yeah, she's got amazing teeth for somebody who, who never met a toothbrush until he left Tibet. <laughs> but part of that has got to be because, yeah, there was no, no kind of sweet treat snacking culture in the way that there is here. I mean, the I mentioned that he lives at relatively low altitude and fruit and, and honey are abundant so it's not like um like sweet things are an unfamiliar taste they're available but they're often um combined with actually savory ingredients like cheese again yak cheese um or in the case of the dish that's served traditionally served first on new year's day that's a kind of sweet rice dish they're usually um served in conjunction with savory ingredients i think their main key like you know everything's like a natural from the yeah. land as local as possible and then the good for us i think the key is like everything is really natural as possible mm. that's why it's good for us and the teeth or or the mm. other healthy you know so we i went to the density here and say you know they're here very shocked so your teeth is amazing and yeah in when i was in tibet it's just we know barely we never brush the teeth but it's you know we not eat much sweet, but sweet, we do sweet. have honey. But I remember yeah. when we went to visit your family, <clears throat> you, we brought a little sachet of, of sugar from the plane. <laughs> <laughs> fact, this is our kids' abiding memory of that last trip was of her tipping the the the, um, the sachet of sugar into her mouth, you know, without yeah. so much as a backward glance. You know, I think sweet things are definitely appreciated. <laughs> Although having said that, we're, we're, the first visit we made, we brought them chocolate. We brought yeah, big yeah, bars yeah. of chocolate and I have to say they thought it was disgusting. But probably that was more no. about texture. I think we made the mistake no. of bringing kind of chocolate with nuts and yeah. chocolate with raisins and chocolate with, with other combinations that are obvious to us. But I think, I think 
not not inside Tibet. So that's why they, they said they're worried about teeth, they say, you know, they're the nut and the sweet. They're more worried about nuts. Yeah. <laughs> But at Tibetan New Year, there's a lot of sweet treats eaten. So people really go to town at the, at the New Year and there'll always be literal sackloads of, um, well, the, the most commonly made is a kind of biscuit, is something called kuzi, which translates literally as mouth eat. So it, it isn't, it's designed really to be made to, to kind of snack on while you're cooking something else because at New Year time, it's all about food. So as long as you've got something on hand to kind of, and always to give guests too when they come by the home, which is something else that will always happen at New Year. And, that's, and then those biscuits are made in really kind of beautiful, intricate and meaningful designs. So it's also an opportunity for people to really get their artistic um, juices flowing. <laughs> and, and talking about you, yeah, you do say that... Um your point number seven that there's a really important culture of cooking and eating together a lot, a lot like you know a lot, lot of cultures in the world cooking and eating together is is kind of the it's the hub of the family tell, tell us about mm. how how that works in tibet how people cook and eat together well me- meal times are still um observed as a kind of sacred activity and you can understand that when people are working on the land whether that's close at home or or up with the animals on the higher pastures. You know, they work, kind of physical work, it's very hard. And so um, people still make a big deal of mealtimes. That's the time when you stop and um, everybody will will muck in and um, cook together, eat together. Before they they eat their food, they'll always say a prayer. And the, the purpose of that is to remind it's a kind of a way of everybody reminding themselves of again the hard work that has gone into getting the food from the soil to the plate even people who and there are many people who've who've left the village for city life but anybody who lives in the city will still have deep connections to their rural roots and the reality of the hardship and struggle that are inevitable part of the the pastoral experience and everybody is aware of the means by which food reaches the table and so the the prayer serves as a reminder of the generosity of the people whose efforts have ensured that food has been able to reach it so um, and buddhists also say that you know beginning each meal time in that way also serves as a, a as an expression of gratitude and a reminder of the the primary purpose of food as nutrition yeah. and that this makes food taste better you know, when we focus on that, when we don't dive straight in, um, we're really better connected to what's on our plate. And and also that we'll eat in a more mindful and moderate way. Yeah, and again, that's something that we're being told today, you know, mindful eating is the best way to get the best out of your food and, and yourself, you know, by taking your time and having a pause and thinking about what you're eating and consuming. And, you know, that's a lot healthier Mm. and talking about health um you said tibetans have become expert in the art of healing using specific food and drinks can you tell us a bit Mm. about that well just as they've lacked access to um to dental treatment there's also not easy access to hospitals or western medicine in most parts of tibet and so over time they've become um, experts at identifying the the food and drinks that that help um, 
through natural healing. And this knowledge has been passed down from generation to generation, place to place. And um, essentially, Tibetans have identified much in the way that traditional Chinese medicine does, uh, some foods as hot, some foods as cold or cooling, and some foods as neutral. So hot foods would include things like butter and garlic. It's quite obvious when you think about it. And cooling foods like uh, foods like yogurt or, or spinach, neutral foods might be potatoes, mushrooms, that kind of thing. And they say that by eating a good spread of these foods, we keep the body in balance. Or, you know, if if your body is of cold disposition, I know that mine is. <laughs> yes, yeah, she always says I'd be useless living at high altitude Tibet. You know, you need to um, you need to focus on on trying to introduce more so-called hot foods into your diet. And um, this means that they never think of food in terms of the protein or carbohydrate content of a meal, but more in terms of what it can, can offer you, your needs personally, and also the, the dietary needs of a group as a whole. So you'll, you'll ideally find all, all different kinds of foods present in a Tibetan dinner spread. Amazing. Um, you also say for number nine that um, there's been a few changes in Tibetan cuisine recently because of outside influences, especially with more and more Chinese business activity coming into Tibet. Can you expand on that a bit? I mean, the reality is that that actually there's always been, I mean, to, many people think of Tibetan people as this very isolated place, but over time there's there's actually been a lot of contact between Tibetan people and, um, and traders in India and Nepal, and this is how how tomatoes would have made their way in, for example. And so this recent change, now that there is, um, for the first time, the opportunity, for example, to, to grow your own vegetables in, in greenhouses, so out of season. So you might, you know, grow hot, warm vegetables, you know, in actually during the cold season, something that really never, never happened before. Um, it's all part of, um, I mean, it, it, it's nothing new. It, there's always been uh, change in terms of the diet, and Tibetans have always been really embraced um, different culinary traditions and enjoyed bringing new foods into their cuisine. But um, they are, I think, being pulled in different directions uh, at the moment, in particular with with nomads. We mentioned that there are uh, people living away from villages now in towns and cities. So uh, some nomads have in recent years been moved off the land that they've lived for generations. And, and now that they're in the towns and cities and able to adopt a more vegetarian life, there's quite a lot of pressure from the monasteries for them to do so. But that's quite at odds with their, their identity as nomads as well as Buddhists. Um, and, and it's a difficult switch to make. Um, so it's, you know, while it's also welcome and make, makes life easier, it's also complex. Yeah. How does, how, how do you feel about that, Yeshi, about the, the outside influence coming in? Is it a good thing or? Um, I don't know. It's somewhere it's a good thing, but it's somewhere it's kind of bad, you know? And this is, it's not only in Tibet, it's just everywhere. Now here as well, you know, we introduce a supermarket food and uh, like that. So Normally, we are traditionally so we are very very close to the natural, and so that's the way I just push away. So so now, 
very distant and like it just, you know, that's mm. the nature of where we're living. Mm. And it kind of, yeah, somewhere as we said, you know, we were just used to be, we're so close to nature, how we grow. And uh, as a local, I suppose, what some people say, I'm a vegetarian, but the vegetarians, you know, where they come from and then some, somewhere else very far away and, you know, how bad for pollution, so for the, our environment. And the way everything that we need to think about as a vegetarian is not the best. It's not. So we need to think about it before we anything food we hand in our bowl. So And we mentioned that, you know, that it's been proven that you know, Tibetan or for anybody, you know, eating what is local and seasonal is going to be what's best for you. And when you live at relatively when you live at high altitude in inhospitable places, it is likely that you know, what grows around you and in, in the case of the pastures where you know the animals that Yeshi's family still rear of the the food that they eat is is very rich um, in um, nutritious forage the animals that is and when you consume you know again animals that uh, are local to you and have consumed food from that land the most the the likeliest thing is that that's going to be the food that's best for you so although it might mean that your plate is more colourful that you you can grow vegetables and you can uh, acquire meat. From, from animals that graze other pastures, it isn't necessarily um, in your best interest to do so. I think that's that's how many Tibetan people currently perceive it. Yeah. And I think your final point is kind of the flip side of that, which is not only is there a lot of outside influence coming in, but a large number of Tibetan people are now moving out of Tibet and exploring mm. the wider world. Um, tell us about that. So this changes what we understand to be Tibetan food. I think we've described what the very kind of the traditional Tibetan cuisine looks like. A lot of barley, tamba, a lot of yak meat and yak produce, those warming soups and stews. But in fact, many Tibetan people like Yeshi have made their way out of Tibet in recent years and spent a long time living in, well, mostly India. Mm. And so when those people have made their way, like him, to Europe, America, wherever it is that they, they've ended up, um, they naturally uh, receive different kind of culinary influences along the way. And so, um, for example, in our book, we've, you know, we, we've tried to represent Tibetan food in its most traditional forms, but there's no denying that Tibetan food also includes now uh, curries or, you know, for example, or other foods containing ingredients that Yeshi got to know when during his many years living in India. And this would be true for Tibetan people all over the world. So if you walk into any restaurant, any Tibetan restaurant anywhere in the world, you'll find the same, that the menu represents the really unique journey that that particular chef, cook has made. Um, so, so quite, yeah, quite, I mean, distinct distinct menus but a shared experience of leaving a homeland and finding new foods along the way and that's something yeshi that you feel so do you feel like taste tibet the restaurant the street food store the the book is that re does that represent your journey your personal journey from from where you were to where you are now uh yeah, yeah, definitely. That's, you know, the food's like, you know, you can, yeah, learn through. And as well, we live into traditional food as well, but you know, also learn other things uh, from my journey. Yeah, this is kind of my journey. 
Lovely. Well, thank you so much for coming to chat today, guys. I've, I've learned a lot. <laughs> um, so when, when this is going out, um, I think we have run your extract from your book in Olive magazine. And actually, I think we've got a couple of recipes to share online as well. So people can go and find them and they can try the, the celebration rice, which is one of the dishes that we featured. Um, where's the best place for people to keep in touch with what you're doing online? Is it your Instagram page or your website or both? Yeah, probably both. Um, in Instagram, we keep very up to date. Uh, but, you know, if you want to, to buy our book or some of our uh, chili oils or other products you can go to our website and we we also you at the website you can subscribe to our newsletter which we send out every week which we call we call that postcards from tibet so we always send people a snapshot of life in tibet sometimes we include a recipe as well but otherwise just reflections on on life there or adapting to life here in the uk We've been doing that for about four years now. We haven't run out of things to say yet. <laughs> uh, yeah. So, yeah, the, just come on TestVet uh, website and then just so we can show more information. Amazing. And, that's, yeah. So that's tastebet.com and your that's right. Instagram is at tastebet. Thank you so much, Yeshi and Julie, for chatting to us today. Thank you so much for having us on. Thank you so much. Thank you for listening to the Olive Podcast. For recipes and more information, head to olivemagazine.com. Do remember to listen out for our effortless bonus episodes where our guests reveal their best cooking cheats, hacks and shortcuts. And don't forget to subscribe at iTunes, Acast, Spotify or wherever you get your podcasts.